Hi, friends. This is episode 78 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey, everybody. Welcome to session nine of our series called God's Blueprints, where we walk through Ephesians and ask the question, what is it that God really wants from us? And what does it say about his character? Now, today we are going to go through a session that really helps you explore some of the most amazing ways that you can not only show your love to God, but experience love as well. I want to make sure that you get all the subtle nuances, so make sure, if you have not already, go to our website, thebiblelab.com, go to the episodes page, make sure you go to God's Blueprints and go to session nine. Click on that study guide, get your own free copy of it, so you can follow uh, follow along, you can see some of the issues that we talk about, some of the language and some of the culture and context so that you fully understand what God wants you to know about his blueprint and about his character today. I'm so excited to go on this conversation with you today. Welcome to the Bible Lab. Here we go. Number one, most of the people in this room pretend to be nicer than they really are. <laughs> oh my word. Let's look at this. Okay, so this is interesting. It's almost, hold them up, hold them up for me because it's almost by sections here. Um, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing more yeses in this section. So that's, uh, that's not a very nice section. Um, <laughs> I'm seeing a lot of no's over here, so these are nice people. If you're new here, talk to them afterward. Um, but I'm seeing a ton of maybes over here, and we're all over the place. I think we're almost even, uh, 33 point whatever percent for each yes, no, and maybe. You can put the cards down now. So the question is, what does that mean? It means <laughs> that you're going you're gonna to have a really interesting lunch conversation because whoever you're here with, if they didn't raise the right card, um, yeah, but you already know them well enough to know they're not that nice anyways, right? Can I hear an amen? No, don't say amen. Okay, number two, I can walk into the vast majority of Christian churches around the world and instantly feel loved. Okay, let's see. I'm seeing a majority of no, like 60% no. 60% no, and I'm seeing about uh, 20% yes and 20% maybe. That's not good. That's a failing grade. Um, and I, I, I get that because I travel a lot. And the nice thing about being where I am in my career right now is most people still don't recognize me. And the worst thing about my job right now in this part of my career is most people don't recognize me. Um, <laughs> I can walk into churches and, and actually see how they, how they treat normal, average people. And you're right, about 60 plus percent of the churches I go in really don't care. They don't care that I'm there. And maybe you felt the same way. I've been in churches where they, they're trying. They do the whole thing where um, at the beginning of the service part of their preliminaries, they say, okay, now stand up and go greet someone near you. 
Have you been in that church, right? And I've been in church where I'm standing up, I'm looking, and I'm a friendly guy because the one thing that really bothers me is people say, that place is so unfriendly, so unfriendly. And I always ask, well, did you try to make any friends? Did you go up to anybody and say hi? Happy Sabbath, good to see you. It's, you know, how are you? Or Happy New Year this week, whatever. And most of the time, well, no, they're supposed to do that for me. I was the guest. And so since I'm allergic to that, I'm also very much into, well, I'm just, I'm just going to go say hi. They're going to meet me. And I've been at over 60% of the churches that when I'm meeting them, most of the people never ask my name, where I'm from, or am I new there? I'm the one asking those questions and I'm the guest. But it's amazing how many people don't respond with, in kind and ask me, well, what's your name? And where are you from? And are, are you a guest? Most people are so self-interested that it never comes to their mind to ask you, right? And so those are the churches that are so unfriendly that even the Holy Spirit isn't invited. And those are the ones that you feel like you could ice skate down the aisle because it's a, a very cold church. So we're going to talk about that today because there is an antidote to that. Because one of the last things we're going to be as, uh, as the people of God and the community of God is a place that is self-interested. Self has to die. Paul says, I die daily. Probably because he was, he was kind of an egomaniac. And he, had, he knew what he had to battle. And so today we're going to talk about how do you change whatever church you're in? Because chances are God will move you as he needs you in a different place, different time, different church, different community. He will move you. And when he moves you, how can he replicate what we do here in this place? Because that's God's goal, is to replicate, to multiply, to create experiences around the world where people truly understand who he is and what his character is like and his character is love. So we're going to talk about that today based on Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 today. But before then, let's look at number three. Greed causes more sinful acts than any other emotion. Greed causes more sinful acts than any, any other emotion. This is interesting. I'm seeing about 90, almost 90% yes, and then I'm seeing, wow, it looks like about 7% maybes and 3% no. So most of you are saying that the majority of sinful acts that we do, it all stems from greed. And I lean that way myself. We're going to talk about that today and see some of the subtle nuances, but I lean that way myself. In fact, I think the reason why most people are greedy, because you've got to talk about where that comes from, is because they don't actually, these are church-going people, they don't actually believe that heaven is real. And that's why you've got to hang on to everything you can possibly get in this lifetime. We're going to talk about that today as well. Number four. There are some things that Jesus did that are impossible for us to do. There are some things that Jesus did that are impossible for us to do. Okay, I'm seeing a sea of green. Like 97% yes and 3% no. I, I, one maybe, there we go. Maybe, maybe two maybes if I miss one. So you guys were pretty quick on that one and pretty overwhelmingly saying, oh yeah, there's things impossible for Jesus to do. We're going to talk about this in detail because if you read John chapter 14, verse 12, you may raise up a different card. 
with the exception of one thing. Of course, we cannot forgive sins for God. We can forgive sins between humanity on a horizontal level, but we can't in a vertical level say, I forgive whatever you did against God. So yes, but other than forgiveness, those of you who are curious and you have a Bible, look at John 14, 12, where it says, if you believe in me, you will do the works that I'm doing. In fact, you will do even greater things. So a yes, no, maybe could be, can you do greater things than Jesus? We would have all said no. Jesus says, well, I disagree. Because I'm calling you to do greater things than I did. And so we're going to talk about that today. Because I think for the most part, like we, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, having very low spiritual self-esteem, having a low self-image of us spiritually, we don't understand what Jesus himself said and what Paul's about to write through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that you were called to do greater things than what Jesus did. Of course, you can't do the one thing that only God can do, which is do that vertical forgiveness, but Christ has called you to do everything else that he did. We're going to talk about that today. And number five, last one, I comprehend intellectually what God wants me to do. I comprehend intellectually what God wants me to do. Good. This is what I expected. The majority of the people here are Seventh-day Adventists, and you are known for Bible knowledge. So I saw about 85% yes. I'm seeing about 10% maybes and, and 5% no. Um, we're, we pride ourselves in our intellectual knowledge of theology, right? But we're also fighting Every generation is a pendulum swinging away from what we were to something that we wish we were. And because of that, a lot of people nowadays, especially the younger generation, I'm talking to you young people right now, you're running away from the beliefs and the doctrines being pivotal in your relationship with God, and you're running to a more spiritual expression of what does it mean to be in relationship with God, and less of an intellectual. In fact, many of you who grew up with a very intellectual approach to church are very much enamored with what we do in the Bible lab that strikes the emotional chord. We get the emotion, the, the, the loving emotion that was not present in the real presentation that you came into the church or experienced as you were growing up in the church. It was more about knowing truth from error, and now you're experiencing knowing the difference between being loved and not loved. And so many of you are running toward the emotional expression that we're learning in the Bible Lab and running away from intellectual. And so in the same way, both the old generation and the young generation are running away from the intellectual knowledge and trying to prioritize the emotional expression, the, the feeling. And yet today we're going to we're going to balance ourselves out a little bit because the scripture is going to tell you the importance about understanding intellectually or comprehending intellectually what God has done in order for you to fully have the experience of being in relationship with God. And so we're going to talk about that as well today. Now, today's text, we're going through Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, but I want to break it up into two different parts. And so on the top of the front side of your study guide, I have verses 1 through 14, and then we're going to take a break, talk about those verses, 
and then we'll come to verses 15 through 20 on, on the back side of the study guide. So let's read, first of all, what Paul says about living in the light in Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 14, and the New Living Translation reads this way. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. That's why it is said. Now, I'm going to take a pause here because I highlighted a word that many of you are going to say, why did you boldface the word said? And the reason why I did is the understanding of the people was most likely because you cannot find this for uh, this uh, this quatrain anywhere in scripture. This is poetry. But you can find the pieces of it in four different places of Isaiah, which leads commentaries to think this was actually a hymn. You can actually read the lyrics to a very common hymn within the early church. And so instead of said, maybe we should translate uh, verse 14. That's why it is sung. Okay, that's why it's sung. Awake, O sleeper, Rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. All right, so that's the first 14 verses. Let's take a step back to the very first phrase there, where it says, imitate God. Uh, this is a tough one. It's a tough one for us today, and it's a really tough one in Paul's day. And I'll tell you why. In Paul's day, it was very rare, if ever, that any Jew would ever say the phrase, imitate God. And there's a reason for it. There's a reason why the other religions around that were not Jewish would say that as well, because the gods of the other people were not gods that really had characters that you, ne you definitely would want to emulate. They were greedy and conniving and jealous and vengeful. Secondly, they were gods, and you were humans. Gods did God things, and humans did human things. And the only reason why humans would interact with the gods is because the humans wanted things. And the gods possessed power to grant those things. And so the only interaction that a human and a god typically would have with these gods of other world religions 
is to somehow entice that God to give you what you want. Or somehow do some incredible deed that the God will look down and say, now that was admirable. Because you've done this deed, I'm going to give you this gift. Or I'm going to give you this superpower. Or I'm going to give you this talisman or, or something like that. In fact, it's the very same construct that Jesus used for his introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the... And he went to the poor spirit and the meek and the, you name it. That very same construct was very common in the Greco-Roman world because their gods would say, Blessed are you, Achilles, because you slayed this beast, I will now give you this magical thing. Jesus used that same construct, which we say blessed. The people in Paul's day would probably use the word congratulations. Congratulations to this and that and the other. So that was the interaction between the gods and man. Now the Jews had a whole nother layer. You would never say imitate God. And you see on your study guide why. Because they look back at the original sin of Adam and Eve and the temptation that Adam and Eve had in Genesis 3 verse 5 was to somehow become like God. And because of that, the Jews throughout history, all the way up to the time of Paul, would never say imitate God because that was original sin of Adam and Eve. And so Paul uses this very controversial phrase to these early Christians, both Jews and Gentiles. And all the Jews gasped when they read Paul's words, imitate God, and all the Gentiles were saying, what's the big deal? So the question is, okay, so Paul says we should imitate God. What does God want us to imitate? So I want to just poll the crowd here, raise your comment cards, and let us know. We'll bring a microphone to you. What are some of the things that God wants us to imitate? If we are to imitate God, what are the things that, no, that's good. That's good to imitate him. So there's no wrong answers. So here's a comment card right there. Larry, over there, we'll start with this one right here. Thank you, Purple Mike. We're told that the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. So we should love our neighbors as ourselves. Okay, so both of them have love in it. Love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So if you do that, you're imitating God. Good, I love that, Larry. Uh, over here, yes, Caroline. Yeah, I think I was going to say essentially the same thing. If we can live a life filled with love, that is actually how we are going to best imitate yeah. God. Um, I am not sure what the difference of that is between yeah. Genesis 3-5. Maybe you can expound on that. Yeah as opposed to um, wanting to be like God. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think that the, the Adam and Eve, or what do you think the ser serpent was promising Adam and Eve? Cool. He certainly wasn't promising them that they could love like God, was he? No. So I, I love that. I'm going to take them in, in two parts, and I'll, I'll take the last thing first, and then I'll go to the first thing, because both you and, and Larry have hit on the same thing, and imagine we're going to hear some more as we get to these other microphones here in a second. But love seems to be... A, a real common denominator between between some of these things if you're going to act like God. And I, I love that I'm hearing uh, not hearing judge, I'm hearing love, because most people would say, if they're saying what is the role of God, we might start with something less than love. 
So I'm going to start with the second part. The interesting thing of what the, the serpent did in the tree, in the, in the story of the fall of man in Genesis 3, what he offered that Eve and Adam took as the bait, it's interesting, what they wanted was wisdom. So go back and, and look at Scripture, because the temptation... The temptation was not to have the power of God. The temptation was to have wisdom. And many people would look at that and say, well, what's wrong with wisdom? We're telling our kids, we're raising our kids, I want my kids to be wise. We usually add another word after that because they're acting smart alecky. But we want them to truly be wise. We want them to have wisdom. And isn't it amazing how the enemy can take something that's so admirable? something that we would all encourage our young people to seek. The thing that we look at the King Solomon and his prayer was for wisdom and God granted him this supernatural wisdom. It's amazing to look and see that wisdom was the bait on the trap that the serpent gave to Adam and Eve, which goes to show you it's not necessarily the wisdom that was bad. What was the trap? And the trap, we're going to see this throughout Ephesians 5, 1 to 20. The trap is using good things for your own benefit. As you're looking at your self-interest, how do I build myself up to give myself what I want? That's the moment you stop loving others and you start loving yourself more. And so... We're going we're gonna to dig deeper into that, but I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because most people look at the sin was eating the fruit. No. The temptation was the fruit. No. The temptation was wisdom. We're going to come back to that in a minute. I think, was it the green mic that was next or the blue mic? Green mic. Yeah. So how is it? is it to love your neighbor when you have a neighbor who is a young couple and Friday night, Saturday night, they're up till 12, 1 o'clock celebrating the backyard. This is winter time for crying yeah. out loud. Yeah. You know, I said, yeah. My wife says, open up the window. I said, That's... I did. But I'm closing it back up again because they're having another party again. Yeah. So it, it's more difficult than we think to love the neighbor. It's much easier to love someone else that's far away. Absolutely. It, and, and it's even harder to love that neighbor if they're your relative. That's even harder. Um, we're we're going to come back to that because you're, you're, you're correct. You keep coming back to this love, love, and you're looking at loving the difficult to love. Um, it's interesting to look at the language of love your neighbor as yourself. Um, most people use that as kind of this ability to say, well, you know, I'm not supposed to love myself that much, and so I don't have to love them that much. I'm very humble, and they're going to be very humble too. But the language actually says, uh, if you were to have the same understanding of the syntax, the language actually would read, love your neighbor because they are the same as you. And how they would have heard that is, love your neighbor by looking for similarities, not for the differences about, okay, they're party animals on the weekend. I need my, and I can't even concentrate. I'm trying to read. I can't hear my own program. I've turned up the volume. Um, 
there are things about them that are the same as you. The tough thing is we are distracted by the things that are different from us. Um, and so that's, uh, that's a real challenge there. Uh, blue microphone. Yeah, Raul. So uh, I would like to go back to um, the weirdness of imitating that you mentioned at the beginning. Yeah. It was awful that Paul would say that. Yeah. There's, and, and in doing that, I think I'm going to get myself in trouble. Good. So Good. Anyway. That'll make two of us today. So, um, but um, there's one more element, one more reason why this, this whole passage that we read is really awful. And it is because the current, by then, cur current cultural and social uh, mentality and situation and assumptions. Paul is denouncing here sexual depravity, immorality, and, and a long list, yeah. purity and greed, um, and so on. But, and, and, and we kind of assent to that. But back then, it was weird because it, those were not sins for right. the Roman society. They yeah. were virtues. It sounds weird, but it is true. If you read the Roman documents by that time, you yes. realize that the things that Paul is condemning yes. were not only common, they were virtues among men and women from all levels of yes. society. And, and I, I want you to continue, but I mean, with your profession, you understand in Ephesus, there is a building there that is the biggest tourist attraction of the entire empire. And that tourist attraction is all about sexuality. Exactly. If you want to unpack that. Yeah, and uh, so um, Paul is, is going a long way trying to convince a Christian community within a Roman community Within a subset of Ephesus, which is all about the temple of Diana or exactly, Artemis, which is all about sexuality and fertility. So, um, so he, he, he painfully tries to convince Christians that there are these things that people around you um, not only cons uh, you know, do, but also consider as virtue, are wrong mm -hmm. and, and are harmful. And, and they're ungodly. Yeah. And uh, I'll finish uh, my comment with saying that the danger part of it, <laughs> the dangerous part of it, which is, hey, as I read this in 2022, yeah. man, it's so much, so much relevant. Yeah. Because God is, is telling me, hey, same things I called ungodly back then, they're still ungodly now. Yeah. And you need to imitate me, says God. Yeah. And, uh, and do verse 10. Think, determine what pleases God. I mean, that, that is it's not difficult to think, but it might be more difficult to determine. make it inside. Absolutely. And as always, you're a man ahead of your time, Raul, because we're getting to verse 10 right at the top of the back that you're only about 15 minutes ahead of your time so don't get cocky all right but you're headed right where we're at Raul if we look at this list of things and ask the question what is unloving about each of these things that Paul lists out 
instead of asking what's wrong with these. If you ask the question, how does this expression express unloving behavior to someone? That I love myself more than I love you. That I'm using you and I'm loving things. You'll see it as clear as day. For years, I I worked with young people. 22 of my 28 and a half years now of pastoral ministry, uh, I work in, in youth and young adult ministry. And so you can imagine I've had a lot of young people come into my office for counseling over the years. And one of the, um, for me, sickly humorous uh, experiences that, that I would have in my office is when a young person would come in thinking I didn't know what they were talking about, and I would say something letting them know, I know exactly what you're talking about. And those tended to go like this. A young lady would come in, sit down at my desk and say, how do I know if my boyfriend really loves me or not, or is just using me? And my consistent phrase, and I apologize, but my consistent phrase to them was, stop having sex with him. They would gasp, how dare you? How dare you accuse me? Whatever. And I would just sit there, waiting for them to stop being appalled. And when they stopped to take a breath, I would, they would ask, well, how could you possibly say that? I said, because you would never have this question if you were not in some way in a position of feeling like, am I an object that's being used or am I a person that's being loved? And so stop having sex with them and you'll know the answer. If they stick around, they love you. If they don't, they're using you and they love themselves. And so when you look at this list of things, you We tend, as Christian people, we tend to look at things as right or wrong. We don't tend to look through a list of these things that the Bible says, avoid these things, and ask the question, what is loving and what is unloving? What is selfish and what is selfless? And if you look at this list, what Paul is saying is, these are ways you tell people, I don't love you. So don't do those things. Imitate God. Over here, red microphone. Yes. Oh, yeah, I would say uh, praying daily for the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. So in that way, we will have the grace of God to be able to love our neighbors as ourselves. I, I love that. And I think the greatest travesty is that what you just said, people will hear it, and just let it go out the other ear because it's become cliche to us. Live your life with the Spirit. Let God guide you. Let His presence come in and do something. We hear that, but there's very few Christians in the world that do that. And it's a shame because that's the most profound thing that changes your life, is to actually let the Spirit produce fruit in you. Now, you use the term Spirit. We're going to see later on in this verse where instead of the word spirit, the word light is used. Yeah, the the Holy Spirit is referred to as the light. And so we're going to talk about that in in just a little moment, because that's where when all of you are sitting here about two-thirds of the way through and you're like, okay, I'm feeling like I got a lot of work to do. We got some really good news today, because you don't have a lot of work to do. God has a lot of work to do. He just needs you as the foreman of your life 
to allow the workers to get working on your life. And God himself will produce in you what you cannot. And so we're going to talk about that toward the end of our conversation today. Purple mic and then green mic. Yes, Olivia. Yes, the relationship of Jesus with the disciples was the whole point of teaching them how to imitate him yeah. or, how, or what things he wanted imitated. Yeah. And in the situation when the disciples tried to heal this man through prayer, uh, they, they didn't do it. And so they asked, uh, why does it happen for you and it doesn't happen for us? Yeah. And, and he tells them exactly. And I think that... And what he tells them is, Stop trying to do it yes. like me. Yes. Start letting God do it through you like God does it through me. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like um, the Spirit spoke to me at one time that said, I, I, can't, I said, I can't do that. I can't. He said, open your mouth. Mm-hmm. I will put the words in your mouth. Yeah. And so when we refuse to act on these things we learn, it's because we think we're going to do it. No, God is going to do it for us. Absolutely, absolutely. Olivia, you're a living example of it. I'm a living example of it. Amen. Balaam's donkey is a living example of it. <laughs> All God needs is a mouth yes. that's able for him to speak through. And like I mentioned, we have such low spiritual self-esteem the majority of us, if I were to ask yes, no, or maybe, which I won't embarrass you, but many of us would say, no, I don't feel like if I just open my mouth, God would speak through it. Um, we doubt it. Even if you raise the yes card, you would still have doubts. God can use me. And quite frankly, that's a good place to be in the state of humility that, wow, you know, I'm, I'm a nobody. Why would God use me? But it's a horrible place to be in spiritually to close off God's opportunity. Uh, there was a, a, a young lady that was talking to me a couple of weeks ago that uh, was talking about her experience where God just speaks through her for three hours during uh, you know, her medical procedure every week. And things that are coming to her mind, she's like, how am I remembering this? And it's because God is speaking through her. And that's yes. what God wants to speak. And it's someone that goes here to the Bible lab and then God uses the experience um, to share what it's she said i it's just it's amazing i don't know how i'm remembering this stuff but it's allowing me to have a three-hour experience with people every week uh and that's because she's allowing god to speak through her and she's not shutting that off and saying how could i possibly do that i'm just me and so i think it's really important for us to stay open he gave many examples of what he wanted us to imitate and one is prayer and fasting Uh and he went and then the other is when he talks to the ocean and the ocean obeys him. And so, but these people, like you say, it goes in one ear and comes out the other because their ego thinks that they have to do it. No, it's little faith if you think you have to do it. One of the strongest tools that the devil uses is doubt. That's why it's extremely dangerous for us to be in a situation where we're not surrounded by a fellowship of believers. And I personally have great fear for certain individuals who 
they don't have a great family network, possibly live alone, have been members of this community, have gone on this journey with us up to this point, then COVID hit. And because of their aloneness, I'm seeing this consistently, especially the people who don't have a strong support network in their house that they can talk to just at any time or have a lot of family and friends around them. I'm seeing the devil using doubt to even keep them from gathering again with us in the Bible lab because their doubts are greater than their understanding of what God wants to take them on the next steps of their journey. And because of that, uh, my prayers are, are fervent for a large number of people who are living with the most crippling doubts right now during a time when you know we need to build our faith together as a community but the devil singles you out it's, it's like it's like on the serengeti how the predator will single out one from a herd and once they single out one uh, the hope is lost for that one and that's the value of us keeping each other strong in the faith when the devil's trying to attack us with doubt green microphone over here um when you were talking about the emphasis of being on emotions, how we feel, yeah. which is in pop psychology and all these you know, support groups nowadays versus intelligence, yeah. I think that's such an important point because emotions and feelings can be very deceptive. Yeah. And we're, when we're talking about letting the Holy Spirit in, I feel like there actually is something more than we need to do and can do yeah. beyond that um, when it talks about imitating God and reflecting him the only way to do that is really to keep your focus on him yeah. which practically speaking um, you know he created us with the law of worship so whatever we focus on we're going to become like and yeah. um, there's a book called you are what you love mm -hmm. and I think it's so true so for me in terms of what do I do I have to make the effort beyond that. If you're going to be in a relationship with somebody, you have to give it time and focus. So if I spend all my time watching Netflix, I, I find myself, I'm going to become like those idols that I'm watching. But yeah. so I think that's, you know, the emphasis of me taking the time yeah. to spend that and just read, getting back the mm -hmm. intellectual part about yeah. what Jesus did. Yeah. Or if you're, you know, if you're trying to make a decision about work and you feel a certain way, sometimes you come back to writing down the objective things and weighing them. Yeah. But anyway, I just think that the emotions can be very deceptive and to get back on track, you look at Jesus' life and exactly what he did and said. I, I love that, Debbie. I, I, I always am amazed at how we're in our human life and our rules for relationship. We're so clear about what makes a good relationship. But the moment it's about a relationship with God, we just kind of throw it all out the window. And uh, you're right. A lot of people will just go to feelings. And uh, I've, I've done premarital counseling for more couples than I can, I can possibly count. And it's always funny, the very first session, and one of the funny things is I ask them, so why do you want to get married? <laughs> and inevitably, they say, oh, I just love them. I just love them. Just, I just love them. And I say, that's it? That's why you want to get married? Because if that's all it is, you're getting divorced. Because today you love them, 
But tomorrow they're going to irritate you so bad that you are going to fall out of love with them and so you will decide no longer to be contractually joined together. And I don't, I don't do the, the wedding ceremony for people who are going to get divorced. I have a really good track record and people don't get divorced when I marry them. So I'm sorry, I can't do your wedding. And they look at me like, whoa, that's great. Why do you want to get married? And so then they get serious and they start listing all this. Well, well, because when I'm feeling down, they lift me up. And I was sick once and they brought me soup and they made me feel better. You know what? I've had a tough day and I come home and they rub my neck. And, and they list all these things of what the other person brings into their life. And so I say, okay, great. Can I help you guys? You're not in love. You're in appreciation. Because you're appreciating everything that they're bringing into your life. But you don't love each other. You appreciate what you're getting. But I'm telling you, there will come a day when you might not get some of these things you appreciate. And you will fall out of appreciation and think you've fallen out of love. So why do you want to get married? Because if it has to do with what you get, you're not going to stay married. If it has to do with what intellectually you understand this person is a life with purpose. And if intellectually you understand and have had the conversation with, that, with this person, what are you here to accomplish on a greater scale to help the world around you? If you have the conversation with each other, say, well, this is where I feel God is guiding me to help the world around me, and I feel a real call to this. I think it's crazy, and I know it's audacious to even talk about, but I have this big vision of what God wants to do through me in my community. And then after you have that intellectual conversation together about what they feel passionate about doing as their life calling, their life purpose, their God-given purpose, then if your response is, my job is to make sure I do everything possible to help you get there. It's my role as your spouse to make sure you accomplish your goals, your dreams, your mission, your purpose, your very life purpose. And my job is to elevate you and to, and to see opportunities to help you have footholds and handholds to get there then I am loving you. And if you're doing the same thing for me, we'll never out-love each other. And we'll always feel like we're in each other's debt. Like, man, I still owe you so much more. What would life be like without you? It'd be hell. And if you have that focus, an intellectual focus, then on the days when you don't appreciate each other as much as you, as you did the day before, your marriage is not about that. Your marriage is about, yeah, they're irritating me, but let me find an opportunity to help them. They're frustrated. They're in a really dark space today because things seem to not be going well for them. What can I do to help them have that next foothold, handhold to accomplish what God made them to do and who he made them to be? In the same way, we throw all that out the window when we talk about a relationship with God. What is his purpose? What can I do to help him have footholds and handholds in the community that, that I live so that God's purpose can be achieved? Am I loving God? Because before I even thought about this, he was doing the same thing for me. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. So I'd have footholds and handholds to climb out of this scummy life that the devil has created around us. So how do we imitate God? It's by making sure that we are in every way making sure that people are cared for around us, not worried so much about how we're cared for personally. And then we could be a lot less offended by all the people around us. Now, it's a lot easier 
then traditional old church has made it. Traditional old church says, look, here's a laundry list of things that you need to work on. You need to be more loving. So church today, we're going to leave here and we're going to go out to our communities and we're going to do random acts of love. Well, that's too random for me and it's too random for God. God wants you to have calculated acts of love. Intellectual acts of love that say, I am called to love because God needs me to represent him as a true ambassador. Not just as some person that people look and say, are they affiliated with you? And you're like, no, they're not affiliated with me. So how do we do it? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 9, it very much echoes Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, which in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, Paul writes to the Galatians, he says, the fruit of the Spirit are, or if you read New Living Translation, the Spirit produces this fruit in your life. So, in the very same way, Ephesians 5 verse 9 says, the light within you produces. So everyone take a big sigh of relief because all of you thinking, I need to be more loving, I'm going to be more loving, I'm not that loving. You can take a sigh of relief because it's not you producing the love. It's you inviting the light. Now, the older translations of this verse, if if you have a King James, New King James, some of the older translations, they actually use manuscripts that were, that were from a later time period. We've been really fortunate since Dead Sea Scrolls and many other scrolls to be able to find scrolls that were much younger, closer to the time of the writing. And the manuscripts that are all closer to the time of writing show that the scripture really does say, the light within you produces. And that well-meaning scribes, they're not changing theology or anything. They just later on said, look, Paul calls it the Holy Spirit here. Let's just make everything the same so we're not confusing people that there's a light and there's a spirit and there's this other thing. But in reality, it is the same thing. It is the Holy Spirit within you producing this fruit. So what is this fruit? instead of using the nine separate items that he uses to the Galatians in 5.22, he summarizes all those nine into three categories. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. And I love how he has those three because really, if you're trying to be good, right, and true with the people around you, you're going to be loving. Exactly. Right here, Sharon, green microphone. I always wanted to be a missionary when I was a kid and didn't really realize that it would mean that I would have to travel with this guy all over the world. I know, you poor thing. Um, in my old age, I have discovered that, in, that several old friends have come to be closer to me who are of a different religion. Yeah. And I, I used to think 20 years ago that I should start seeing if they could accept the doctrines of my church. I'm beginning to realize that God speaks to everyone, and if I want to be a missionary to that person, I must listen and find the spark of the Spirit within them, yes. no matter how it came to them, no matter how they might differ in some of their doctrinal points. Find that and encourage that. Yes. Listen and re return to them my appreciation of how God is leading them. I, I love it, Sharon. What I'm finding now, later on in my career now, and especially now that I work 
mostly with people who are not of my faith. And by of my faith, I mean Christian. Um, I'm finding now that if you truly love people with the love of God, invite the Holy Spirit in and say, God, this is your opportunity. Do, do what you want. Uh, I am not having to tell people about God. The Holy Spirit is causing people to ask me about my God. And in consistent ways to where things where you think might offend people, like, like praying in, in public, uh, they're coming to me afterwards and saying, thank you, it's been so long since I heard someone pray in public, will you pray for me? Um, so, you're right. It's not about us forcing our will on people. It's about sharing God's love with people, and God's will is manifest. Because my will is broken, and my will is flawed, but God's will is perfect. And don't you know, we've talked about this many times over the years, don't you know God is desperate? that that person be in a loving, saving relationship with him. So he's going to do it right. Sometimes, just like with the den of lions, he has to close our mouth just so he can get his will done. And because of that, uh, if we struggle and, and try to come up with something in and of ourselves, it always is hollow and flat, and people are like, oh, that's nice, that's kind of weird. Um, but it doesn't have the same effect as God sending people to us. And the more you're filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm telling you, if you will take it seriously and just invite the Holy Spirit into your life every day, all day, you, you will never have trouble witnessing again. You'll never struggle with, where's my story? Because the Holy Spirit is desperate for anybody in your sphere of influence to be filled with the Holy Spirit so he can speak through you. Now, of course, we have way too much conversation than we have time. And so... I'm going to run through just a couple of points here. I want to make sure that you get before we move on to the next section. Because in Ephesians 5, verse 15 to 20, Paul says, So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing songs, uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of your Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of things I want you to understand before we go. First of all, he says, make the most of every opportunity. How do you make the most of every opportunity? Because I'm getting anxious already. Okay, God, you give me opportunities. Am I making the most of it? Relax. Invite in the Holy Spirit. He does everything else. Just invite in the Holy Spirit say, God, I'm tired of being independent. I need to be dependent. It's the only codependent relationship you should have in your life is with God. It's the only healthy codependent relationship you can ever have. Being independent with God, you're just going to mess everything up because you're going to think you're making the most out of an opportunity and you're making the most mess out of that opportunity. So, Ultimately, how do you understand what the Lord wants you to do? As he says in verse 15 to 17, he talks about not being foolish or unwise. And you can see the Greek words there, uh, which means senseless or unwise. Uh, Asaphoi is where we get sophomore, which those of you teachers understand, sophomore means wise fool. Um, you're smart enough to know enough to be really dumb um, and think you know it all. We're not called to be know-it-alls. So, how do we understand what the Lord wants us to do? Um, there's only one way. 
Because that understanding cannot come from your own logic. Understanding what the Lord wants you to do can only come from the Holy Spirit giving you nudges and sometimes pushes and sometimes kicks in the seat of the pants in order for you to go directions, to do things, to be passionate, to care for people you never cared about before, to ignore people that used to distract you, and to truly love people who were unlovable to your life before. So understanding what the Lord wants you to do has everything to do with inviting in what Paul calls the light, which is the Holy Spirit. And when you invite him in, verse 18, uh, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he equates that with an opposite spirit. Um, <laughs> I, I, as a kid, I'll never forget, we're driving by a liquor store, and it says, wine and spirits. And I'm like, what spirit they got there? <laughs> Paul uses that same, that same contrast to say, there are spirits in alcohol that when you drink those spirits, they are in control. You are no longer in control. That's why you do the foolish things you do when you're drunk. But Paul says you've got to be controlled by something. But don't be controlled by those spirits. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Because He has to control you. You have to give up control. You have to allow the Holy Spirit to control you. Stop trying to be in control. The reason why our church has only gone so far in the amount of time we've had is we've tried to be in control and our church has always had control issues. That's why many of your kids have left the church because they felt like the church had control issues. Give up control and let the Spirit have control and then there are fruit that will come from this. It unlocks four doors. That's the last thing that you see in verses 19 through 21. We didn't read 21 this week. We're going to start it next week and many of you are going to be really curious about it because it talks about submission it talks about wives and talks about husbands. Can I hear an amen? And uh, we're going to see what it really says. When you really see what it says, you'll see how the church and its quest for control uh, has really messed up on that too. It's a beautiful thing what God calls for. But in verse 19 through 21, he says there are results to being filled with the Holy Spirit. That first result is you start singing to one another. One another. Sing songs and hymns. You're singing with other people. The second result, once again, you're singing. Only this time you're singing to God. you got that song in your heart. Even though everything's bad, you've got this little song in your heart saying, it's all right, God, you got this. The third thing, third result, third door that it unlocks is thankfulness. Now the rest of the world, especially Eastern mysticism today, is really keying into this because this is true. If you are grateful it actually affects your health in more ways than you could ever possibly imagine. It's actually reversing certain chronic illnesses just by getting into the practice of thankfulness. Chronic, deadly illnesses. Being thankful and grateful on a regular routine basis daily reverses chronic illness and actually extends your lifespan. Inviting the Holy Spirit in unlocks a level of thankfulness and gratefulness you could never have on your own. That's the third thing. The fourth thing is a humility of submission. It makes you humble, willing to submit that you're not the greatest thing <laughs> since sliced bread. It allows you to keep your focus, to allow you to love even more so the Holy Spirit can even love through you even more. 
because you're not loving people so you get more and more popular, more followers, more likes, more shares. You're loving because it's your chance to serve. It's your chance to help other people accomplish their life calling, their divine purpose. And we're going to talk more about that next week. That's right. We are going to talk all about that in session 10 of God's Blueprints. I want you to come back for that because we talk about the very challenging text that says, Wives, submit to your husbands. And I want you to understand exactly what God is saying there because we've missed the verses before it and we definitely missed the verses after it that are talking about what does God want to do in your heart to help you be imitators of Him, to look more like Him, to be that change agent in your community. This verse has been misused more times than it's probably ever been properly used. And especially for you wives and husbands, I want you to understand what the Bible really says when it says, wives, submit to your husbands. And so I invite you to come back for session 10. Hope to see you then. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at thebiblelab.com. Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.